You are listening to the Roberta Glass True Crime Report, putting the true back in true crime. From New York City, Roberta Glass is now on the record. The West Memphis 3 PR machine has started turning again, and I thought it was a good time to return to the subject of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers' killers. The three aforementioned eight-year-old boys were killed on May 5th, 1993 in West Memphis, Arkansas. Their three killers, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, were convicted in two separate trials in 1994. And after the release of the HBO documentary Paradise Lost and its sequels, a star-studded campaign to free the child killers really caught steam. And the West Memphis Three asked and received an Alford plea in 2011 and were released. And to talk to me about Damien Eccles as William Ramsey of the William Ramsey Investigates YouTube channel and podcast. Welcome, William Ramsey. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. So I really wanted to sort of take them separately. And Dave McGowan has said that the West Memphis Three case has never really been about the West Memphis Three. It's always been about Damien Eccles. Why do you think that Damien Eccles gets the majority of the publicity and the majority of the attention in this story? For a variety of reasons. It's a great question. I think that the main reason is that he seems to be the most skilled in talking to the media. And so I think that that's one of the reasons. I think also think that he, I think his sensibilities are that he can manipulate people. Is that, That's my thoughts. So I think that he's really the core member. Miss Kelly's the exact opposite. You almost never hear of Miss Kelly unless he got arrested for DUI. But he's in the background since their release, which, curiously enough, has been 11 years to the day. So, and actually, Eccles posted that on on the social media. Interesting number 11. I'm sure that was intentional. And also, he has the most knowledge. I think that his background in studying esotericism or the occult also puts him out ahead of Baldwin in that regard. So I think his knowledge and his networking in that regard has is, is also put him at, at the primacy or the, the front of the three. Yeah. So you said a couple of things there that I want to unpack. One is, what is the significance of 11? Well, it's a great question. It really comes out of Western esotericism. And I learned about the importance of that number going through Aleister Crowley, which was my first book, Prophet of Evil, which I published, self-published 2010. But that was really kind of the prime number for Crowley coming out of the Golden Dawn. And it just popped up all through his religion of Thelema. But it really represents a lot of things in occultism. It's the coming together of the microcosm and the microcosm. So if you're a magician or sorcerer, you're at the center of the universe. So the five and the six, the pentagram and the hexagram come together in 11. And it's in Crowley's Book of the Law. And he repeats this numeric code within a lot of his statements. So do it thou wilt should be the whole of the law is 11 letters. I mean, 11 words, 11 syllables. So a lot of this stuff is really comes through Crowley. Crowley really emphasized that number. And it's still kept into from Crowley into the modern culture. So you'll see that in Harry Potter, Tyler Durden, Harry Potter's wand is 11 inches long. So that number always is a number of import, and it, it transfers into Damien Eccles' own occult studies. So you'll see him call himself Archmage 11 and some of his, his social media posts, just like this post, the 11, which he also posted other Crowley numbers. He's very familiar with Crowley. So you'll see the 93s as well through Eccles. 
So you're saying that some of his support is from people who are fellow travelers. Is that what you mean? Who people who are interested in the cult, celebrities who are interested in the cult? Absolutely. I think that's kind of one of the great mysteries, at least in my reading through of the West Memphis Three, when I really started to look into it in 2011. Really, when they got out uh, was really when I started. But one of the mysteries is why are all these people uh, supporting Eccles? Why are these people from diverse backgrounds, a lot of Hollywood people, why are they interested in some poor trailer park kid from West Memphis? And what I, through my studies into some of these people, Depp, Peter Jackson, Margaret Cho, Henry Rollins, a lot of them have a very curious backgrounds and interest in esotericism too. That for sure is very, very uh, much so into the occult. I don't even think I have to say that's my opinion. I think his, his movies and a lot of stuff that he says and his Indian his interest interest or interview with Eccles too. I have an interview with him and Eccles when Eccles was talking about his book where they're talking about keeping the magic flowing. So that magic is kind of like this magical worldview. And I think they both have that. So definitely Depp is, I think, very much interested in the same stuff Eccles is. Also, what's interesting is that Eccles was older than the other two. And he's a high school dropout at the time of the murders. And he's hanging out with all these younger kids. And we always hear the West Memphis Three referred to as kids, but he was 18. Right. He was tried as an adult. Yeah, he was tried as an adult. But he was so regressed. (laughs) He didn't drive. He had dropped out of school. He had no ambitions to do anything. He didn't really hold down any kind of job, had no ambitions to hold down a job, and just hung with these kind of younger high school students, dated younger girls. and, and He was on full disability. Right. Right. Full disability. Yeah. He's on full disability. That's what people leave out. Mm-hmm. He was on full disability. So he's getting money for the government for his mental illness. So he didn't have to work. He never, to my knowledge, even did part-time jobs. And he described that as a little bit of depression. Would you describe his mental state as a little bit of depression? I think in part, yes. There's been analysis of his mental state going back to 1992. He was in three different institutions or institutionalized three times, once in Oregon, twice in Arkansas. So there's very voluminous records of his uh, mental illness and the things that he was interested in, drink, licking blood, talking about the occult. Right. So they, they knew that he was interested in these things. And when he went into his appeals process in 2001, there was another, you know, kind of pretty well regarded psychiatrist who looked into his background and verified everything that was going on in 92. So he said he agreed with everything they said back in 92. His name is Woods. And you can look that up. So the Woods affidavit. So he signed that. And it said, like all the stuff that he said, that he was totally psychotic, that he was he was in his jail cell opening, looking for a wall, a way through his wall to transfer into this next world. Like he really thought he was going to be delivered up somewhere, is what Wood said. And that was happening during the time of the trial. Right. And he said that, that, that he was going to get powers from... from Drinking blood. <laughs> other beings. and, and right. It, right. Made him feel like a god. Right. Yes. Yeah. In court. So he has a very rich... Mm-hmm kind of interior mindscape that most people don't have. And he was being taken out on night rides by this being Rosie, who he's communicating with. Right. And kind of even the title of my book is kind of a play on one of his statements, like his misspelling in his one of his scribbles. Uh, he talks about the abonations will be coming onto the earth soon. I am one of them. I want to be the king of freaks. So he had very vivid kind of uh, end of the world type sensibilities or writings. His whole psychiatric record is laid out in this thing called the uh, Exhibit 500. A lot of people, that's always glossed over in this case, in the analysis of this case by 
dupes and people who aren't willing to, who are deliberately omitting certain things from the factual record. And I think that's very questionable when people do not mention these important aspects of this whole saga. You know, it was something that I was like, why isn't anybody talking about this? About this? this is what happened in 2011. So his psych record is almost like an encyclopedia. Some of his ideas, I think that maybe even to the most present thing where he's up against the system and has played himself against this system, there might be a component of psychiatric or psychological makeup that's involved in that, even up to the present day where he's fighting against the system for things that he already agreed not to do in 2011. When he signed on the dotted line for the Alfred plea, I think he gave up his rights to sue or any further legal steps taken you know, that that was the that was going to be the end of it, that he was never going to come after Arkansas, certainly in a civil case. But uh, I have to go back and look at that. But yeah, so. Well, he's going in and out of mental institutions. And one of them, he gets there the first day and a kid gets a scratch on his arm and he's running over. He hasn't met anyone there, I assume. It's his first day. And he just grabs the kid's arm and starts sucking the blood out. And they send him to his room. <laughs> That's right. an exhibit 500. It's just, so you can talk about, I'm a white witch, I'm into black witchcraft, whatever you're into, but the actual reality of it is something that I don't think anyone in our audience would want their kid involved with, right? Right, I totally agree. Because I, I just hear my audience scream that, well, if he's interested in magic, it doesn't make him a murderer. What would you say to that that argument? I would agree with that. But I think that, you know, I had this Carl Raschke, he wrote Painted Black. I talked to him, he said, ideology influences action. So whatever ideology you believe in, it influences action. Well, if you're reading stuff about Crowley and eight-year-old boys are the ultimate sacrifice, and Crowley does write about sacrifice in his, in his known published writings in different places, that the animals give off energy and you're supposed to capture that energy within the circle. And when you have these ideas, that could lead to the manifestation of these ideas. So I do think that certain points of magic, and, and this goes back to the very beginning of the case, this Deanna Holcomb is one of his earlier girlfriends said, oh yeah, he's into black magic. He'll say it's white magic. And that's in the records. But if you're into that darker aspect of magic, even in witchcraft, actually, you don't even have to be in the OTO, but Eccles kind of is a free-flowing kind of uh, magician. He's interested in druidry and OTO and a lot of other stuff. He even admitted in court that he knew everything about it, about magic. Mm -hmm. But it goes back to the original case. Deanna, he admits this, uh, what I was trying to say before, but in his own biography, Life After Death, he wrote that... After his arrest, his ex-girlfriend was taken to a deprogramming center to be certain she was no longer under the influence of Eccles and his ideas. And that's what happened. She never saw him again. They never saw him again. Yeah. So he admits that. Wow. That's on page 179. You can read that. I have to revisit that. I have a copy at home. Yeah, I can quote it. I was also later told that during the investigation after my arrest in the summer of 1993, he persuaded Deanna's parents to send her to a deprogramming center to be certain she was no longer under the influence of my nefarious spell and that they should contact him at once if they ever saw or heard from me again. That's precisely what happened. And his mother was also mentally ill and also dropped out of high school, needed her mother to raise her kids, and then she gets with these abusive men. But what is interesting to me reading through, I was just reading through, rereading through Exhibit 500, was how consistent Echo's personality and how early it was formed from an early age. Extreme selfishness. I don't want to use the term narcissism. It's so overused, but extreme selfishness. 
I was looking at a form he filled out. What would I do if I won $100 million? Who would you share it with? No one. What gifts would you give? Nothing. You know, <laughs> it's just so echoes. And that's the same person he is today. That's extremely, I don't think, have you ever heard him mention the three eight-year-old boys he's convicted of killing of by name? I haven't. I don't remember. No, never. No. Never. It's it's really one of the glaring omissions in all of the interviews. He never talks about them. He never expresses anything about sympathy for them or thought or emotion or any type of, you know, normal kind of pathos for the deaths of those three kids. It's totally out omitted. It's really telling. That's set up. And when he's asked about his sister being, he says, oh, my sister is being molested by my stepfather, but I don't care about it. I don't care about that. And I was thinking about also beat a dog to death, right. starting fires. But if he beat to death a dog on social media, any celebrity or person would be person non grata. They would get tomatoes thrown everywhere they go. Right. Well said. But kill three eight-year-old boys and be convicted of it twice. And you get to walk the red carpet with Johnny Depp. It's such a weird dichotomy in our society, no? Yeah, no, it's very strange. It's very strange, too, because, like, the Hollywood elite is so performs these these virtue uh, outpourings that it's very strange to see this. And that's why I included in my book the kind of, like, cost celebrity killer section, mm. where I include a couple guys like Unterweger out of Austria and uh, Jack, what was it, Jack? can't remember his name. But these guys who he had all this celebrity support, and they just went on to keep killing again. Jack Abbott, you mean? Jack Abbott, yeah, thanks. Jack Henry Abbott. Jack Henry Abbott, yeah. So that's why that's that part is in the section of abomination, which, I mean, it's almost, it's 10 years old, man. It's been a decade, I can't believe it, since I published it. But yeah, no, it's amazing how, how many brutal things that Eccles has been involved in and fights and stuff that they just gloss over or, or ignore. It's, it's remarkable. And it's even his own words. So do you think that Eccles is a good liar or a bad liar? I think that he's good at manipulating people. I think that that's really his skill is manipulation. So I don't know if he's really that great of a liar in that regard, but I think he's a great manipulator. I do, 100%, my opinion. Do you think he's a good liar? I do. I, f I found him very convincing when I was a supporter. I found him very convincing. So I will tell you, maybe I'm, I'm <laughs> a dupe. Well, I didn't. I thought they were innocents too. But if you pay attention, you can catch him making inconsistencies from one interview to the other. So here he's on Piers Morgan saying, I never got in trouble. Here he is in another interview in prison saying, oh, Jerry Driver was my probation officer. Is that correct? Yeah, he's a PO, yeah. My juvenile probation officer because I got in a lot of run-ins. <laughs> so his supporters watch both those interviews and never raise an eyebrow, never think to themselves, hmm, that's a little bit of a different story. And he tells wildly different stories. We really weren't from West Memphis. My teeth had gotten all damaged in prison from the guards beating me up. And there's his teeth looking pretty good shape. So what happened? Maybe he's saying they're in the back of his mouth. I'll give him that. But I don't know. Yeah. Well, I like the one, one whopper where he was getting beat up and he was afraid. Like he knew that he wasn't going to get stabbed. So, like he knew after he got out. Oh, when he was watching a comedy show in New York, he knew he wouldn't be stabbed when he was on death row. When he was on death row in a single right. cell. Right. <laughs> Who's stabbing him? Who's stabbing him? It's. Preposterous. I mean, why is everybody so credulous? Why is everybody so credulous? Right. <laughs> right. Like, it may not even be his lies, but what it's like, it's the duality. Like, why is everybody so credulous on somebody who's been convicted, appealed, the appeal failed? 
writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court failed. Everything failed in in the law, but why can't why do people believe his his story? That's a really I think that's as, as an important question. The believability of these mockumentaries. I guess it's the they think it's documentaries actually documenting something. It's may, maybe the thing like they don't know that these are opinion pieces, not documentaries. I don't know. I used to think that there would be some sort of law <laughs> against just lying. And obviously there's not a law that is against lying in a documentary that you would get some kind of pushback for lying. But there's no correction. And it's a major problem with our press, no. not just our, our documentaries. But yeah, no, totally agree. We saw him in prison looking so clean cut. They really kept him. And you pointed out that he would say the same things over and over again in interviews, like as if it were scripted. Yeah. Who do you think was scripting those things? Do you think he was practicing them in the cell where they think he thought up? Was it something do you think it was Lonnie Surrey feeding to him these kind of ideas? Or where do you think they came from? I think at some point that they realized, the West Memphis Three realized that these documentaries had created this swell of public sympathy. And at some point there was a switch where they got, in my opinion, Lonnie Surrey or somebody from PR to train them. Either they're lawyers too. Like when they started getting the, the this great lawyer, I mean, Reardon was like a noted appeal specialist. Like some, they paid big dollars, my understanding, Jackson and Depp. So once they got these higher powered intellects, something happened in his story. So I did show in one of my videos, which got censored. I don't know if it's still up, it may be, but like he's repeating the same thing with almost the same facial gestures. Like he looks away, like he's re referencing his memory, like it's a good fake, but um, something did happen. So I think that that's why that happened in 2003, 2004, leading up to 2011. They got somebody intelligent and I think really helped put that proper face forward and got sympathy from, you know, what's the FBI agent, uh, the FBI profiler, what's his name? Douglas. Some of these guys, the sympathy in that. John Douglas. Yeah. John Douglas, yeah. So I think that they had to have somebody PR, whether it was sorry or not, I'm not aware of that. Interesting. So what would you say to someone who was a West Memphis Three supporter who really believed in Eccles? Read the court documents. Just start from the beginning. Look at what people had. I mean, look at what the police worked on. They always have these kind of lines. I was convicted for a crime I didn't commit. There's no evidence. The D, you know, well, look at all the evidence. They're doing the work. The cops did the work. You can see them compiling. They interviewed like half of West Memphis. You can just see the interviews with these girls, the women. What do you know about Eccles? Do you know who he's with? The Bly interview, the Climber interview. All these statements are there in Exhibit 500. So I think that if you're able to read, I think that the kind of scales can fall from your eyes and you can see this. I mean, and also I think that people get blinded by these terms like satanic panic. Because once they kind of apply that concept to this case, then they can't see what's right in front of their face. And actually, that's a kind of an Orwell statement. The hardest thing to see is what's right in front of your face. And omission is the greatest form of lies. Another Orwell statement. You can apply those to the West Memphis Three. But they see this as kind of like an injustice automatically in that it involves satanic panic and there's nothing to be afraid of. And so then the certain parts of that evidence, it doesn't register in their minds is my thought. So even intelligent people kind of, in my opinion, make mistakes about, about the West Memphis Three. But I think that you have to go back and read. And I think that's the difference in these different mediums. People get their information from the TV or podcasts that have very low integrity towards the facts. And then that just gets spread around kind of like a virus. So I think that that was the success of the West Memphis Three is really getting these memes to go out there 
it's almost like a form of mimetic warfare or somebody likened it to a spell a guy I talked to and in a way it is like there's people who are uh, under a spell so they have to go back and look at the case and look at the facts and look at all this stuff and yeah i mean i think the conclusion is also very disturbing like it's probably very hard to think for people that these young would be that savage savage and i think for me as someone who believed all this is that you have to ask well if this is untrue and if our media supported three child killers universally find me a mainstream article from the west memphis three campaign on when that started up when that pr campaign started up that's critical of the west memphis three if they're printing things that are totally untrue what else are they lying about Right. And I think it really is an indictment. It's an indictment of HBO. It's an indictment of the directors. It's an indictment of the media, the journalists. I mean, to look at this, it's like everybody dropped the ball. And I think that that's really the case, in my opinion. I mean, I don't even think that's opinion. Like they left out so much. Even John Douglas, under scrutiny, his book does not hold up. He says they were never, they never got into any trouble. Right. (laughs) Patently false. So when you start a a profile based on total falsehoods, you're going to come up with a wrong conclusion. No, I mean, he he wrote in his book, I see nothing in the record that's indicative that these three are violent. Mm -hmm. Just like you're just like, what? Like, what are you saying? I mean, you can see this in so many different ways. It's like a kaleidoscope. If you just turn it a different way, you see a different design. So in one way, you could see it as Satanists supporting other Satanists. In another way, if you turn it. You can see it as the public's insatiable need for an unusual story. So, unfortunately, three teenagers killing eight-year-olds is not that unusual. But three innocent people convicted in two trials uh, for satanic panic, for being different, were wearing black. Now, that has some villains that are palatable for the American public. They don't like the cops or some people don't, you know, there's a majority of this. They don't like the system. Of yeah. this, right, of this audience that won't like the cops, especially young people and people who are bucking authority. And it gives you sort of an outsider against the system story that people find irresistible. I agree. I I think that they keyed in on that. I think that's a consistent theme in Eccles' PR approach is always, you know, the man got, you know, I was tried for different ideas and, you know, the man is out there and corrupt. He keeps calling the system corrupt, (laughs) corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. And when I look at everything, I just saw, I saw the people doing their jobs under hard, difficult circumstances. Exactly. Like even the judge held firm all the way until he got transferred. They got out because their new judge sat down, Lazar, new DA, but that Barnett or Burnett, he held fast all the way through all of that, the maelstrom of uh, this negative PR and people belittling him and stuff all the way to the end. He didn't change. It's it's just amazing. And they're putting in these kind of DAs, the DAs who will, they just got rid of, I'm going to mispronounce her name. She's in Tennessee DA, Amy Weisrich. I'm sorry if that's a mispronounce, but she was a great DA, but they put in one of theirs, the Innocence Project. Did a big push and she got ousted. And they put in George Gascone, your DA in Los Angeles. Yeah, he's a disaster. Right. You brought up Miss Kelly just before we go. I just don't want to leave this out. All three of these child killers have confessed. Now, we talk about Miss Kelly so much because he confessed so many times. Right. Recorded, too. Recorded. Audio recorded. (laughs) Right. Recorded. Three recorded confessions. Many more after that got convicted 
confessed all the way in the back of the cop car. We could just go over all those. But Eccles also confessed to the softball girls. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and that was one of the key elements of the entire trial was that these girls were at between their the commission of the crime and their arrest. That was uh, May 5th to June 3rd when they were arrested. He was at a softball game saying, I killed three, I'm going to kill two more. He actually said he was going to do it. He was kind of like boasting and bragging. And so that was on the trial. They didn't show the girl's face when she walked up to the court. At least they didn't show it in um, Paradise Lost. But there's the recording of her saying that's what she saw. She said, I've been writing. She testified. Jurors believed her to be honest. He called her a liar, too. And uh, so that was one of the key things. And also the Hollingsworth family song. Yeah. He called those girls a liar, liars on the stand, too. And then he admitted later that he said it, but it must have been a joke. Tell me the joke. Yeah. <laughs> I, I killed those three boys and I'm going to kill two more. Where's the punchline? I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm lacking in, in humor. Is there anything we missed? But there's so much there. Like his whole involvement of the cult, of the cult has been left out. There's a key component of the trial, Alistair Crowley. They had a copy of the uh, book by Crowley, Magic and Theory and Practice, which mentions the ideal killing his eight-year-old child, which was brought up. And then all the way up to today, I think he's just publishing a book with his girlfriend, wife, or whatever. I think it's called Ritual. So that they're going on a book tour still. So he's just been putting out material, 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 still training people and... Uh, I think that the, the denialists who say the occult is not a component of this trial are deluding themselves and others when the occult and Satanism and Crowley are critical, key, central components to the entire West Memphis story. I mean, even if you think it's nonsense and you don't, you don't have to believe in the occult to believe that there are some crazy people out there who do or are interested in it. I think it was very interesting that Damien Eccles and his supporters said, oh, no, it was just Wicca, and now he's a Buddhist. And then when he got out, it was like he let his freak flag fly and <laughs> and then came out and was photographing Aleister Crowley's door. and Right, in New York City, right. One Washington place, I don't know. Right, excuse my mispronunciation of it of his name Crowley's door and posing posing like Crowley including statements axioms from Crowley right going through and knowing he knows a lot about the history the post Crowley history he knows about Marjorie Cameron he's taking pictures with her artwork of Jack Parsons he's definitely knowledgeable like he's he's reflecting knowledge that I knew from writing Children of the Beast so he's very much and hanging out with Genesis P. Orridge which is super telling like that is Incredible. Right. Admitted in SK 931, he's a thelemite. He called Genesis Peorge his mother. There you go. All these Satanists seem to have spiritual mothers, spiritual brothers, like a spiritual family, you know, of like-minded people. No, they do. And that that's why I called the book Children of the Beast children, because within the occult, if you're a magician, you kind of have these magical children that are your... They follow you. So like Crowley had these followers, like Parsons would have been Crowley's child, magical child. So that theme presents itself as like a family concept within the magical community, which is real. There's just so many books out today. I think magic is probably going to supersede Christianity or whatever the national religion is sooner than later. Um, ideologies and ideas do lead to certain outcomes that are negative. I'm just saying that people don't think there's a connection between thoughts and ideology and actions in the real world are 
deluding themselves. It's absolutely true. But it's very easy to say we do things for no reason at all or whatever, you know, that there are certain people who are, are very motivated by this kind of ideology. Beckles said and said at the end of his own documentary, he endeavored to be the greatest magician of all time. And then he was attracted to magic from a very early age. So that's his worldview. That's his outlook. And why do you think this particular ideology is dangerous? Well, I mean, if you're talking about kind of the selfishness, I mean, I think Crowley reflected it very well. He was very selfish. He believed in doing what you want. That was his dictum. You're kind of the center of your own universe. Hated God, hated Christianity, thought they were a God. There's no God but man. That's Crowley's dictum. So if you're making those decisions on a worldly basis that are totally selfish, self-serving, the consequences of that in your personal relationship towards other people, you don't really care about other people. It goes back to stuff that you just mentioned about what if you made a billion dollars or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he, he wouldn't give it to anyone, William Ramsey. <laughs> so I do think that that magic can have maybe, I mean, they're definitely, the, part of this magic is they're trying to communicate with spirits. They have a spiritual worldview. Like a Christian is praying, or Jew, Jewish person, Judaism is praying to God, right? Or praying to Yahweh for, you know, with a communication. Like, I would like to have this. Please heal me or something. Christians do the same. Or like, but these guys are praying to different entities, beings, dark gods, the devil. Ooh. Crowley definitely is an admitted devil worshiper. He just was sophisticated enough to disguise it and called the devil a wasp. He used a different name. But he admits it in, in magic and theory and practice who Awas is. He just had a very, Crowley was very sophisticated, very intelligent, and very well educated. So these ideas, I think that the, the, just to say that these guys are communicating with entities and beings that they don't have a biblical worldview. These guys are talking to entities who take him on night journeys and lick their hands and tell them we're going to do great things in the future. Wouldn't you say also that there's no morality in it, that your morality is whatever you yeah. make it, so there's no rules? So Yes. And you mentioned the selfishness, yes. so it's just, I think that's very dangerous. Do what thou wilt. Right. Do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. That's very dangerous. What, what does that mean? Like, Crowley meant total freedom from restriction. So these restrictions that we have, that means even the law. The laws are put in place from experience. Like, this is why we have laws, so that people don't harm one another. So they're not injuring, they're not cheating each other. These are all moral decisions ensconced in the law. Well, according to the Crowley and his followers and people like Eccles, that's stripped away. Do whatever you want. Be your own God. So I think that's very dangerous. That's why I think that magic, there may be like a nice side for the public and these people get duped into it. But you get deeper and deeper in there. Yeah, the consequences, I think, are immense. Great. Is there anything that we missed that you want to talk about? You know, I just think that Eccles is still out there. I think that um, you can go and read Abomination. It's 10 years old. I still think it's old. It's excellent. It's a very easy read. I don't write my books. There's nothing obscure. I'm anti-obscurantist. It's laid out. So you don't have to go through the trial record and kind of piece the timing together. You can just follow through what they found. So you could actually follow the investigators through the investigation through Abomination. And you can go to my YouTube channel. I've done a lot of interviews recently and a lot of reading into the record, some of the court documents on William Ramsey Investigates, my podcast, so you can check that out. You've also made some great short videos on Eccles, pointing out his lies, his relationship with Depp. And it's so interesting, you know, even among the Amber Heard supporters, who will point out every single one of Johnny Depp's other not-too-great associations like with Marilyn Manson, but they won't touch Damien Eccles because if you just put the word innocence in front of it, then it's just like, it's like this magical, powerful word. 
all the evidence against him disappears and his two convictions disappear. So it's amazing. It's magic. It's magic. <laughs> it is. And do you believe that magic helped get him out? He believed it. Mm. He said magic, magic, magic. He didn't have law or evidence on his side, according to him. He said what got me out was magic, magic, magic. So he was using magic. He has a book called Wine Magic. I don't know what he's getting into people's brains. I don't know. But certainly wasn't the law and the facts. They certainly did a great reversal. I mean, isn't that the ultimate Satanism? The perpetrators are now the victims, and the victims don't exist. <laughs> so it's very dark. It's very, I mean, you really start putting a lot of the stuff together, it gets very dark. So I agree. So. William Ramsey, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I'm here with Jennifer Carlson, who knows more about the West Memphis 3Ks than many, many, many people. Almost everyone I know, except maybe Gary Meese and a few other people, maybe Lisa O'Brien. What made you interested in this case? I used to watch documentaries on the treadmill, and I think I happened upon it years and years ago when I was on the treadmill, probably like 2005, I think, something like that, um, Paradise Lost. So I think you got into it the way most people get into it, through Paradise Lost. And did you believe Paradise Lost? I mean, that has a heavy, innocent spin. I didn't. I immediately thought they were guilty. It was just obvious to me. I didn't even question it for the most part. Everything they did to me looked guilty. And I, I was kind of surprised that people thought they were not guilty. When you say everything, can you think of a few things that made you think that they were guilty? Well, Eccles' testimony on the stand is extremely damning. I believed Miss Kelly's confession. To me, he sounded like a kid trying not to get in trouble, trying to minimize his involvement. That's a good good insight. But anytime you talk about Miss Kelly, immediately someone says, well, his IQ is so low, you can't listen to anything he says. What's the deal with Jesse Miss Kelly's IQ? He has a low IQ. He's definitely not the brightest. I know when he was seven, they said he was maybe borderline or mildly retarded. It's in some sort of report that was done back then. He was having behavior issues all growing up his entire life. He's had behavior issues. And I think he did a little bit of malingering and trying to maybe appear a little dumber when they tested him for court to just kind of make his IQ as low as possible. What's the benefit for making his IQ as low as possible? His attorneys wanted them to throw out his confession based on his low IQ, that he wasn't capable of giving a confession, he shouldn't stand trial. They were trying everything they could because they knew this confession was damning. Um, and the confessions, multiple, are damning. Right. So the lot came out after he was convicted. And we'll go through that. But before we go through those, let's talk about his family history and his background. Who were his family? He had an older brother. I don't know if the brother lived with them all that long, but he ended up living in some other home. His mom abandoned him when he was uh, four. And his dad had multiple relationships. And his dad also had a horrendous drinking problem. Um, he was in and out of jail for DUIs all the time. And he had a stepmother who he was very attached to for a while. He was traumatized. And every time the stepmother would leave, he would completely freak out. Um, he was so attached to her. 
So then I imagine after the divorce, that would shake him up even further. And at the time of the murders, he was living with his dad and a woman named Lee Rush, who was Jesse Miss Kelly Sr.'s girlfriend. Both of them had really bad drinking problems at the time. One of the things that Eccles and Baldwin have said or have given conflicting statements about is their relationship with Miss Kelly, how well they knew him. Sometimes they say we didn't know him at all. Sometimes they say, oh, yeah, we did know him. Did Jason Baldwin and Damien Eccles know Jesse Miss Kelly? Were they friends? Absolutely, they were. They would go and hang out at the skating rink together. I would say he's closer to Jason Baldwin. Everything that I've read indicates that everybody knew that Miss Kelly and Baldwin were friends. And Eccles, Miss Kelly wasn't as close to, but he was close enough to have been inside of his home because he he mentioned at one point that Eccles had a bird head in his room. So he, he knew him well enough to be inside of his room at one point. And he's been inside Jason's home, but everything I can find out was Jason and Miss Kelly were friends. And when Eccles came to town, he kind of joined in. So I, I believe Eccles made Miss Kelly a little bit uncomfortable because he was so strange. But they absolutely were friends and hung out together, all three of them. What were the kind of things that Eccles did that turned Miss Kelly off? Well, he did things with dead animals. He mentioned hurting animals. He mentioned trying to bring animals back to life with his, you know, grandiose satanic powers or whatever, <laughs> whatever they were doing out in the woods, which, you know, some people say was, you know, really bad. And other people say they were just messing around. But either way, it had something to do with dead animals and Miss Kelly was just basically hanging out with them to get drunk and find girls and stuff. And, you know, Eccles is reciting satanic passages and trying to bring dead animals back to life. So that made him really uncomfortable. Also, the Baldwin, when he Baldwin had a nosebleed, Eccles is putting his finger up Baldwin's nose and licking the blood. And Miss Kelly say that turned him off. (laughs) Miss Kelly mentioned that. In almost every single time somebody asked him about Eccles, he mentioned that and called him sick. Almost every single time. So that one thing stuck out to him so badly. Like every time somebody asked him about him, that's what he thinks of, is him licking that blood. And you can even see in Paradise Lost where, I believe, is that Jesse Miss Kelly's sister? Who? is that who says oh Damien Eccles is a good kid and oh yeah that's his stepsister Jesse Miss Kelly makes that look stepsister makes that look like what what are you talking oh, about oh yeah he looks he looks at her like are you insane <laughs> exactly and she's like what she's like well I guess I don't know I'm just trying you to know? help out here guys <laughs> just gonna try to help out this innocence narrative their cameras here so let's talk about these confessions so Did the first one happen after hours and hours of pressure? Was he kept at the police station for hours and hours and hours without water and food and coerced into it is what I'm asking? A hundred percent not true. He was picked up in the morning about 9.45, 10 o'clock, something like that. And I think he's asked like a couple questions and then they want to get permission for a polygraph from the father. 
it's like 11 15 they go back for the permission um they read him his rights like 11 30 um so here here it's like two hours and they've barely done anything at this point and so they give him the polygraph um around 12 so they have to get his father's permission so that took a little while right Right. They had his father's permission. Yep. So that took some time. Um, and they're, they're not asking him questions in the meantime, they're, they're wanting to, to do the polygraph. Um, they give him like three polygraph charts and then they start questioning him once they determine they believe he's lying. So they start questioning him at like, it looks like 1240. They continue interviewing him and asking questions and trying to figure out what's going on. What is he lying about? And so they, they talk to him and it looks like they they talk to him and they take a break and they talk to him and they take a break. They give him some food. They give him like a soda. Um, they ask him multiple times if he wants food and they feed him um, multiple times throughout the day. And it looks like it ends entirely around nine ish, something like that. They let him go to the bathroom when he um, when he wanted to. They you know they they weren't torturing him or anything like that. Um, and he even says, uh, I believe, when he's asked by his attorneys or somebody that absolutely they were they were very good to him. Right, and even he's meeting with the false confession specialist, Doctor Richard Ofshi, and he's saying they treated me very well. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he's telling him, yeah, they, they treated me fine. I... So how did all these other confessions come apart? So before anything happens, he hands his dirty sneakers to Buddy Lucas and cries and says he hurt some kids. Right. That's confession one. That's the first one. Right. And, you know, Miss Kelly denies this, but Buddy Lucas is very, he's very steadfast in this claim that, that this happened. I just had a supporter say that, he, that Miss Kelly got the information from Buddy Lucas. <laughs> Yeah, they they try to say it, it it was actually Buddy Lucas. Buddy Lucas didn't have knowledge of the crime scene that Miss Kelly had, but you know they'll they'll pin it on anybody they can pin it on, and that's just how they operate. So then he has the police confession, right? After he fails the polygraph. Yep, that's on June third when they take him in, and he he starts spilling the beans. Then he gets convicted, and then he tells the police all about his crime all the way to prison well he writes a letter to his family from jail in june saying that he's innocent on june 7th then he confesses to his attorney june 11th basically the same story he tells the police then he tells them this the same story in august he's still sticking with it and then in september his attorney comes up with an idea that he it was a false confession so then they have him meet with all these false confession people so then he's convicted and then he's in the police car on his way to um, the prison or back to jail until he can get transferred to the prison I'm not sure which but um, and he just starts telling the police officers everything same basic story that he tells in every confession the one thing he's adamant about is that he didn't kill anybody that is consistent in every story. He he saw one boy he believed get killed, and um, that was Christopher Byers. And the other ones he saw throw in the water, and that's it. And he left. You know, he always says, "Oh, I left," because he's trying to minimize his involvement. But but he stayed. 
pretty consistent with the main details of the story, where it happened, who did what to who, and that he didn't do anything except beat up Michael Moore. Um, So those have stayed consistent the entire time. When you say who did what to who, what are you referring to? Even originally, when he starts confessing to the police, he'll say that Damien's the one who started it. He grabbed the blonde boy, but he's actually referring to Christopher, who had light brown hair, but he calls him the blonde boy for some reason. Um, And he says that he, you know, he grabbed him and started hitting him and um, was beating him up really bad. And then the other two jump in and they start beating up the other two boys when the boys tried to help their friend. And then um, basically each of the teenagers had one boy. So Eccles would have had Byers and Baldwin would have had Steve Branch and Jesse Miss Kelly would have had Michael Moore. Um, And then, you know, Jason cut the side of Steve's face, which wasn't public knowledge, but Miss Kelly knew that information right away. Um, On the first day he was talking to police, he knew the information and, you know, they were choking them and hitting them and tying them up. So those are the basic things. The other thing is how he keeps them quiet. That's the same in every single confession. He put, they put their hands over their mouths and stuck shirts in their mouths to keep them quiet. He says that every single time. He says they were screaming, stop, in every confession. He's pretty consistent. What he he does is he gets bogged down in the details. If you ever listen to his confessions, Miss Kelly talks in a way that he generalizes things and minimizes things. Like he'll tell the, the officers or whoever's talking to him at the time that this one thing didn't happen. No, nobody, nobody did that. And then he'll say, but they did this. And it is exactly what the other person just asked him if it happened. You know what I mean? Because he, his, it's just the way his mind works. It, he describes things in a different way. Well, I hear the West Memphis Three supporters screaming that he got so many details wrong. He said that this, he said that he did, committed the crime in the morning and it was in, we know it was in the afternoon. Why did he give those wrong details in his first confession they were tied up with rope they weren't tied up with their shoelaces what was his motivation for doing that miss kelly claims that he was giving that information to try and fool the police somehow this is not surprising because he's just not he's just not bright so to try to fool the police by telling them stuff that's not true isn't going to save his behind but that's essentially what he was trying to do you know and I I think it had something to do with the fact that he was working in the morning and he was just trying to minimize his involvement but it's not it's not occurring to him that he's saying the wrong things to minimize his involvement you know he's just trying to get them to think he doesn't know as much as he does because if he knows exactly what they're tied up with then he was there for the whole thing and he was there when they died and he participated in it And he doesn't want anybody to think that he did that because he knows it was wrong and he's embarrassed by it. And he doesn't want his father to know he did it. So he's trying to give wrong details or say, I don't know, you know, I left right before this happened. And they're like, well, how do you know this then? And he's like, 
oh, well, I saw that and then I left. Right. You know, and that's kind of what what happened every every time he would say just a little bit more. You're like, well, how do you know that this you're saying you didn't see them take their clothes off, but you saw them tie them up. But they they had to have had their clothes off before they were tied. Oh, I did see them take their clothes off. Right. You know, I saw them pull. I saw them pull their pants down and they they didn't even undo them. They were inside out and they just yanked them off like this. And he's motioning, which is not a sign of somebody who's making something up. That's a sign of somebody recalling something, not making it up because they're they're reenacting it. Good point. And the big joke with non-supporters is that if Miss Kelly ever had a memoir, it would be called And Then I Left. Yes. And this expectation that confessions are going to be 100% accurate, criminals lie for all sorts of strange reasons, not just minimization. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's very common when somebody is involved in something that's as just horrific as this crime was. It's very common for them to minimize their involvement. I mean, you even hear, you know, there's a an interrogation expert named Tim Clemente. Are you familiar with Tim? Yes. He's an I believe he works for the FBI and he's an expert in interrogation. And uh, you know, I even heard him one time mention that this is what they do. They they kind of give as little information as possible to minimize their involvement and still confess. They don't want to give the whole thing um, because they, they're trying to save their own butt at the same time. Agreed. What is the deal with the Evans-Williams whiskey bottle? Um, in one of uh, Miss Kelly's confessions, he, I think it's a Bible confession. What do you mean Bible confession? After he confesses to these police officers on the way to jail, about a couple days later, a few days later, he ends up meeting with his attorney and his attorney makes him sit there with his hand on a Bible during this whole taped interview. And he tells him that um, Vicki Hutchinson bought him a bottle of Evan Williams whiskey, which um, if you're not familiar, I've looked it up. It looks like Jack Daniels. It's like an off-brand Jack Daniels. So it would look like a fifth of Jack Daniels, only it would say Evan Williams. And he was drinking it that day. Um, and he said uh, Eccles and Baldwin had um, a, like a, a case or a 12-pack of beer, cheap beer, he said. So they were all drunk when this happened. And he, sa- he says that after he left, he got sick on the way home. And he was so upset about what had occurred. He threw the Evan Williams bottle against when he, when he walked under the overpass. And so um, his attorney and prosecutors went out there after he did a deposition where he told the same story that he told during the Bible confession to prosecutors, which was also recorded. And they go out there to verify this bottle was there. And so they did find a broken bottle that appeared to be an Evan Williams bottle under the overpass, you know, all these months later. So finally, the treatment of Eccles and Baldwin, how was Miss Kelly treated by Eccles and Baldwin after he confessed? Okay, so this this part's kind of fascinating. Miss Kelly tells of the next morning or maybe later that night when he's first in the police station of looking across and seeing Damien glaring at him 
from another room. Wow. I just recently saw that and I had never heard that before, but he mentions it in one of his gazillion interviews and I never came upon it um, until just actually a couple days ago. It was really fascinating to me because, you know, I was just like, this is what has happened the entire time. He is afraid of Damien Eccles and he's repulsed by Damien Eccles because if you look after their release, so you know, years later, they're released and there's a hearing. Um, and after the hearing, there is um, a press conference and the three of them are sitting at the table and it's Eccles and then Miss Kelly in the middle and then Baldwin on the right. And I would encourage everybody to go and watch that press conference on YouTube because the body language in this video is just fascinating. Miss Kelly, he looks like he is going to jump out of the chair at any time. Um, he's visibly uncomfortable sitting next to Damien Eccles. He gets super agitated when people start suggesting some sort of alternative perpetrator. And when the, when the lawyers, one of the lawyers starts talking and saying, oh, the three are so, they're completely innocent. He shakes his head. He looks at the ground and shakes his head, no. It's insane. You have to watch this video. And then Baldwin and Eccles, they can tell he's getting agitated. And they look terrified <laughs> at what he is going to do because they don't know what he's going to do. They probably haven't spoken to him since, you know, before they were arrested. And they just look so scared. And then he doesn't, he doesn't go to the party afterwards. What's the party? What party are you referring to? They had a huge party. It was on the rooftop, right? Yeah, on a rooftop party that Eddie Vedder put on for them. Um, and they all went to, and Miss Kelly just went home with his dad. So I don't know if he wasn't invited or he chose not to go or they told him don't come. But he generally doesn't do interviews or public appearances. Right. He did go to the, I believe he went to the Paradise Lost 3 premiere, but he doesn't ever want to talk about the case. And in my opinion, he is likely to be the only one of the three that ever even has a potential of admitting what they've done You know, now that they're out. Right. We know he, he confessed to a supporter, True Romance, other also known as Lindsay. Right. He's the one who shows remorse. I think mm -hmm. I agree with you. You have to watch anyone who's interested in this case. I really encourage them to watch with a critical eye the press conference when they were released. Not just Miss Kelly shaking his head. There's so many things in that. Oh, for sure. That will raise your eyebrow from. I was just talking with Rick about Baldwin's claim that he saved Eccles from he was going to die of some bad teeth and eyesight. I don't know what, but something. <laughs> exactly. Imminent death yes. is the reason he took the Alfred plea. It's very interesting. The whole thing is very interesting as a yes. PR operation. And then he says, oh, thank you so much. And everyone applauds. Gives him a big hug. Right. Meanwhile, Miss Kelly is sitting there like, I can't believe this is happening. All the attorneys look completely terrible. They keep touching Miss Kelly, like, are you okay? Are you all right? You know, because they know he's literally about to, like, spill the beans at this press conference. 
That's why I said I said, said to you, Jennifer, you have the most interesting one of the three. To me, Miss Kelly is the piece to this whole thing, to the whole case. His confessions, I believe, are the most important pieces of evidence in this case. All of them, not just one. For me, the thing that convinced me. I, I, there's a, it's a lot. It's a totality of the evidence. But for me, if I was going to put the most important evidence on the top, I would put Miss Kelly's multiple <laughs> confessions. Multiple. That's exactly right. And, you know, there's things that he should not have known, you know, and he did. He knew. The one thing that gets me from even from his first confession, his very first one that's recorded after the polygraph, they ask him, where did you leave out of the woods at? Did you go across the pipe bridge? Which that's the famous thing. That's what everybody knows is that pipe bridge. And he says, no, I went up the path by the interstate, which, you know, there are some people who claim that path doesn't even exist, but there's clear pictures of it. Mm. There's maps of the crime scene that have that path. And it wasn't a common path that people would take. There's no way he could have known that that path was there if he had not been at that site. There's no way. Jennifer Carlson, thank you so much for this interview. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. So I'm with Rick Mullinax from the fantastic YouTube channel, Burn After Reading, and here to discuss convicted child killer Jason Baldwin. Welcome, Rick. Thank you for having me, Roberta. So you call your YouTube channel Burn After Reading, but you call the series on the West Memphis Three, Perception Isn't Always Reality. Why? Well, what is the perception of the West Memphis Three? The perception is that they were railroaded by the system and that they were victims of the state of Arkansas and that these were innocent men that were imprisoned and they were freed because they were falsely convicted. So... Perception isn't always reality, because once we do the deep dive, we find out that all three, Jason, Damien, and Jesse, are in fact convicted child murderers. And that's based on fact, legally, and reality. True. And how do you think that this perception was crafted, public perception was crafted for the West Memphis Three? It started with HBO's Paradise Law series. It started there. And throughout the decade, it just got crazier with advocates coming out, an author writing a book, blaming a stepfather, and it just avalanched even today. We're still facing that today with podcasters, with TV series, multiple on the Oxygen Network, and I think the other one was Discovery or ID Discovery. It's just absolutely insane. We have these people also going on the road talking about these things. Um, as a matter of fact, Damien, I think, is going to be in Ohio to do a Q&A, which I promise you, those questions will be vetted. <laughs> always, always, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's amazing. So who was Jason Baldwin in 1993? Let's talk a little bit about his family history, everything that kind of leads into it. And I'll kind of bounce back from things that happened before, during, and after the murders. So Leading up to the murders, Jason lived at Lakeshore Trailer Park in Marion, Arkansas. He lived with his mother, Angela Gail Grinnell, his two younger brothers, one being Matthew, who shared the same biological father, and he also had a half-brother, which I believe his name was Terry. Now, Angela, at two certain points, had men living there, one being Terry Grinnell, who Angela was married to at the time, uh, but was separated from. 
And then there was another man named Dennis Dent, who was also known as Dink. She dated him for a period of time. Now, Jason's mom, Angela, who is mostly known as Gail, she told police after Jason's arrest that her son was a good boy. He went to school, made good grades, loved art. He was an animal lover, and he took care of his brothers uh, when she was unable to. Now, look, this sounds good on the surface, but unfortunately, Jason's home life and attitude wasn't as pure as Gail made it out to be. So let's start with Jason's record for vandalism and shoplifting. You know, at age 12, Jason and his brother Matt had several other boys broke into a building and went on a destructive spree vandalizing antique cars. Um, I mean, they broke out the windows on several of those vehicles. I mean, they just completely wrecked the place. And it was two men that caught them jumping on some cars. And those boys were charged with breaking and entering and criminal mischief. Jason also got in trouble at age 15 when he shoplifted some potato chips and M&Ms from a Walgreens in West Memphis. And as far as Jason being a good boy and watching his brothers, he, in fact, quite resented the responsibility. He didn't want to be the man of the house. He had a writing assignment, and um, he talked about getting into an ugly fight with his brother, Matthew, and Matthew was 13 at the time. Jason stated that he's normally a calm person, but sometimes when he got angry, it was not a pretty sight. The two brothers got into a little bickering argument, you know, as younger siblings tend to do. They taunted each other, and according to Jason, he grabbed Matthew, put him in a chokehold, and he held him there until his face turned bright red, and then he let him go. Their mother's marriage to stepfather Terry Grinnell had been long toxic and marked by violent arguments, especially over Terry's drinking benders over the weekends. Jason often had to call the police because Terry would you know, not just slap his mother, but would also slap Jason and Matt. So a few weeks before the three boys were killed, Jason took a baseball bat to Terry during an argument and drove him from the home. Now, before I continue this, I'd like to say that this completely debunks anything that Paradise Lost filmmaker Joe Berlinger ever said about Jason. He said, looking at Jason, he could tell that he couldn't have committed the murders because of how skinny his arms were. We can clearly demonstrate and on the record show that Jason was able to take control of people and a situation when he wanted to. So soon, you know, you had the new boyfriend named Dink. He would move in briefly. Dink had a lengthy rap sheet. The relationship did not last long. Gail and Dink broke up because, or, or the very evening of the murders, because Gail, I think, was thinking about getting back with Terry. So this is what's interesting. Dink gave key evidence that Jason was not home during that time. I think uh, Fogelman had across state lines. I forget the state, but that's where he had to question him. Okay. Now, when officers raided the home on June 3rd, 1993, Gail angrily accused Terry of turning on her son for reward money. And as we know today, that wasn't the case. It was, in fact, because of Jesse's confession. And when John Fogelman asked that question to Gail in September of 93, why she reacted that way, she just kind of brushed it off like, I, I don't know why I would have said that. And now going more into Gail, she had some serious mental health problems. She had been involuntarily committed to the East Arkansas Regional Mental Health Center in February of 1992. There had been, I think, four trips to the emergency room in Crittenden Memorial Hospital in January of 1992, where she was treated for self-inflicted wounds to the neck and arms. She was admitted for a period of up to 45 days because of paranoid delusions. And that, of course, that included hallucinations of a male voice and the fear that she was dying from AIDS. And another thing that happened around this time, she attempted suicide because Jason and Matthew wanted to live with their dad. So as you could see, Jason had a pretty troubled uh, childhood. Not enviable at all. 
And what do we know about his relationship with Damien Eccles? Well, yeah, let's start from the beginning. Jason met Damien when Damien's grandmother moved to Lakeshore. Damien um, was actually impressed by the number of music cassettes Jason had in his backpack. That mostly consisted of heavy metal bands like Metallica, Anthrax, Iron Maiden, Slayer, and a lot more. Now, Damien and Jason, you know, because of that, they became pretty good friends. And other than sharing interest in music, they were into skateboarding and video games. And they practically did everything together. I mean, they became blood brothers. Not only that, but Damien told juvenile officer Jerry Driver that both he and Jason were into gray magic. He also told Driver that Jason would never give him up because he loved him. Now, somewhere in Exhibit 500, I believe Damien said that he and Jason had matching tattoos on their knuckles. I think it was evil. Now, I don't know if that, were tr that was true, but that's something that Damien did say, so take it for what it's worth. And also, Jason, is going back to the whole Jason would never give Damien up, that was actually proven true when Jason helped Damien and his Juliet S. girlfriend at the time, Deanna Holcomb, in running away together. While the couple were hiding out in a vacant trailer in Lakeshore Trailer Park, Damien would give Jason money to go buy snacks and drinks for them. And of course, eventually Damien and Deanna would get caught. Damien, in fact, actually would be charged with burglary and sexual misconduct. 13-year-old trailer resident Tiffany Allen, you know, she talked about a fight between Jason and another kid named John. You know, she said, John hit Jason, uh, made his nose bleed, and after the fight, Damien would dip his finger on Jason's bloody nose and licked it. I don't know what kind of normal person would al allow another person to do that, but that's just the kind of friendship that they had. And Miss Kelly, in fact, actually repeatedly told a similar story. Interesting. Yeah. In Rule 37, the, the hearing in 2009, Samuel Joseph Dwyer, a neighbor and playmate of the Baldwin brothers at Lakeshore in 1993, he described how Jason began to adopt Eccles' manner of dress and distinctive way of speaking after they started hanging out together. Dwyer didn't like Jason's friendship with Damien, and, you know, he wouldn't hang out with Jason if Damien was there. And Deanna Holcomb said in a May 11th, 1993 questionnaire interview regarding the murders that she believes Damien would have been too much of a coward to do the crime himself and would order Jason to do it because Jason is a follower. And see, you have that in young friendships. You know, one tends to adapt the personality of another. And Samuel and Deanna help illustrate this. Now, similar interests help to become friends, but now you have Jason, who was never into witchcraft initially and wearing black trench coats, is now doing so. And he's doing this for his slightly older friend, Damien. He starts to dress like him, starts talking like him, gets into witchcraft with him, and he takes on a follower role in the friendship. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I call him the Sal Minio <laughs> to Eccles James Dean. I mean, they're different now, but at that time, Jason was just assimilating into how Damien was. Well, 18 also is a lot older at that time than 16. It's true. What was Eccles doing hanging around these two years younger people, high schoolers? I don't know. I don't either. It's very odd. You brought up Satanism and the occult and the evil on the knuckles and the trench coat wearing. There's been a lot of division, even among non-supporters of the West Memphis Three, in the involvement of the occult in this crime. What is your theory of the occult as a motivation for this crime? With Damien, I definitely believe so. But I believe the ultimate was about power and control, um, a wildling effect, uh, which happened within the friendship. So 
I know Damien told Jerry Driver a lot of things, and I don't know how much of that part is true. I think he liked telling stories to Jerry Driver, but that also didn't mean that Damien wasn't an occultist. He clearly was. He was into Aliester Crowley. He was into blood drinking. He was. He would tell people. I wondered what it would be like to murder somebody. So, you know, I really don't know. And I know that was a motive that they used in trial, and I clearly understand that, but I think it was more so for Damien than it was for, for Jason or Jesse. Agreed. And that's just my opinion on that. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, I think William Ramsey knows it better than anyone, the occultic history of Damien. But even today, I mean, we don't see Jason getting into the occult. You don't hear Jesse getting into it. But there were still young, impressionable minds at the time. And I think that that was something that Jason was into. But I just think that it was about power and control. It was that waddling effect that when you get three teenagers and they all had no problem with hurting younger people. We know about Jesse Miss Kelly and how he hurt younger people. Clearly, you can see that Jason has no problem fighting a younger person and his younger brother. So I just think it came naturally to them. People who say that that couldn't happen, clearly they're wrong. And the facts say so. Why do you think that Jason is better in fooling people than any of the other two killers? What I mean by that is I get comments like, maybe the other two did it, but not Jason. And it's similar to what Berlinger said. He's too small. He was 112 pounds, 5'8", when he was arrested. Very malnourished, I would call that, and small guy. And it's not just his slightness. It's also his demeanor. When he got convicted, he stood up and said, but I'm innocent. <laughs> like he was in a movie. Right. Right. I mean, I felt like he was playing up to the cameras. He knew the documentary, but I'm innocent, sir. <laughs> Why do you think that's so convincing for people? He, just his whole demeanor and, and the way he gives interviews is kind of like a, oh, shucks kind of guy. If you don't include the Michael Carson testimony, Jason never does anything to incriminate himself directly. And that has certainly helped his image of innocence and being a good person. Sure, his alibis were weak and unreliable. His defense lawyer went with reasonable doubt versus proving innocence, but Jason never put himself in a situation like Damien where he was telling people he committed the crimes at a ball game or giving contradictory statements on the stand. He didn't confess multiple times like Jesse. He pretty much kept his mouth shut and maintained his innocence. Now, Paul Ford, Jason's defense attorney at that time, like you said, described him as a shy and mild-mattered young man. Joe Berlinger, as we mentioned, along with Jason's friends and family, described him the same way. Gail talked about his love for animals, but not everything is what it seems. And I'll get to that in a second. Now, at the press conference, after his release, he passionately declared that he didn't want to take the Alford plea because it wasn't justice and he wanted to fight for exoneration. But, you know, he did it with reluctance because he had to save Damien's life because <laughs> he was dying, which is utter BS. It was a nice PR moment in front of the cameras, which led to an emotional applause. And them hugging. Them hugging. I did it for you. Yeah. You're dying of vague... <laughs> Vague things like bad teeth and bad eyesight. Yeah. I'm saving you from these fatal conditions. Let's hug, brother. It was so absurd. Right. It was absurd, but it was effective. I hate to say it, but it was. And True. what also perpetuated this facade of him being a victim of the justice system is, you know, his longstanding fight to help overturn and prevent wrongful convictions. He co-founded a group called Proclaim Justice, and he travels the country advocating to cease both the death penalty and juvenile life without parole. So it gives the illusion that he's taking his wrongful conviction experience and he wants to help others. It looks heroic and noble on the surface, 
but it's also a way to play on people's sympathy and compassion. And, and he's a poster boy for that. Look, I don't like speculating, but I have considered the possibility that this might be his way to make up for what he's done internally, but there's no way to make up for what he actually did. So maybe this is how he justifies his past actions within himself by making a secret amends. So with all that said about his facade, I'd like to bring up, you know, who didn't buy into Jason's facade, and that was Jesse May and Perd Baldwin. They were Jason's grandparents on his father's side. They talked about this in the June 5th edition of the Commercial Appeal in 1993. Jesse May talked about Jason's superstition with the devil stuff and how he would regularly hunt lizards and snakes. It's known that Jason skins snakes, which also shows that he knows how to use a knife. And if we consider what Jesse said in his confessions, Jason used a knife in the murders to inflict pain and, I hate to say it, but skin parts of Christopher Byers' genitals. So... Despite the facade of Jason's character, often echoed by the people who sided with him, we see a lot of things debunked. He wasn't too skinny to harm and control a kid. He wasn't too skinny to wield a weapon successfully against his stepfather. You know, he had the know-how to use a knife and a skin a living, breathing thing. So while he effectively wears a good mask, I can see who's underneath it. What are the circumstances of Michael Carson's confession? How did that come about and why don't people believe it, do you think? Well, why they don't believe it or why they do believe it? Oh, maybe that's a better question. Why did the jury believe Jason Baldwin's confession to Michael Carson? Well, for the naysayers, you know, I understand that jailhouse snitching is usually unreliable, but sometimes they are. I know it worked in the Manson case, and I think people need to consider the details. So let's kind of go over it. So Michael Carson, you know, he was in jail at the Craighead County Detention Center in early August of 1993. He was there for about a week or about a week and a half, and Jason was already in jail. Carson was in 48-hour lockdown before he was able to mingle with other inmates, and once he was out, he was able to hang out in that break room. He described it as a small break room, and that's where he first met Jason. Carson, along with Jason and some other teams, they would play spades. Now, here's an interesting point. Carson brought up uh, when he was interviewed is that there were three kids, they would start messing with Jason, and Carson would actually stand up for him by saying that if you got a problem with him, you got a problem with me. So, you know, here you got three of them, and you got one of Jason. So I'm sure that had a hand in Jason trusting Carson. You know, there's strength in numbers. So especially in an incarcerated setting, you tend to get close to people. And Carson was willing to stand up and fight for Jason if push came to shove. So the first time Carson asked Jason, you know, hey, did you do it? Did you, did you kill those three little boys? You know, Jason said no. But the next day, they had just called the inmates into their cells for lunch. And Carson asked again, he's like, hey, man, just between you and me, did you do it? And Baldwin answered, yeah, I did it. So they had about two minutes to talk about it, according to Carson. You know, so Jason told... Carson, you know, some really sick details of the crime regarding Christopher Byers' genitals. And he said that Damien did the same gross things alongside with him, which again, I hate saying it, but, you know, putting the, you know, the balls in their mouth. Sucking the blood from the head of the penis. I mean, really vile, vile, vile things. Yeah. Yeah. And he also said, uh, Jason said to him that when he gets out of there, he's going to kick Jesse Miss Kelly's ass for confessing. And Jason also told Carson that, you know, I'm going to walk straight out of here. They ain't got nothing on me, no evidence. And then when I get out, my parents are going to throw me a big party. I mean, Carson was disgusted. He slammed his hand on the table and was like, man, I don't want nothing to do with you. 
And, you know, Carson, he eventually, you know, he gets out of the detention center and, you know, he doesn't mention it again until many months later. And so the first person he told was his dad. You know, they were watching TV and he was on the couch. You know, he told his dad what Jason did um, because it was being covered. And he said, Jason admitted it to me. And his dad asked him, you know, he's like, you need to take a lie detector test and, you know, go talk to the cops. Now, at first he told his dad, you know, "I, I don't want to get involved, you know, but his dad pushed him to do the right thing. So the next day, Carson's dad called the prosecuting attorney, which was Brent Davis. They went to his house and they talked to him. And Carson told Brent Davis that Jason looked him straight in the eye and told him that, yeah, he did it. So let's look into why the testimony is credible. I mean, one, he passed a polygraph test. And I know polygraph tests aren't admissible. And yes, they can be wrong. I've seen it in other situations. Also depends who's doing the test. And sometimes that can be interpretive. But he didn't fail it. Now, number two, he didn't want to get involved. And I think that's something that people have to consider. He wasn't trying to interject himself into it. Very good point. His dad had to talk him into it. And three, you know, Carson had nothing to gain in testifying. He wasn't in jail. There wasn't any opportunity to reduce a sentence for anything. And there was no reward money. So people will bring up things in the future. Like, I understand that there was a witness who claimed that Michael Carson told him that the confession was false. But... Michael Carson in that article said that wasn't true. Then, of course, now you have West of Memphis, which the filmmakers try to make it look like Carson was trying to say that it was not a real confession or Jason's confession wasn't real, as he told him. But that's not what he said. He just said, I was messed up on drugs. He apologized to Jason, which was weird, but he never said it was fake. As far as I know to this day, Michael Carson has never recanted that confession, and I believe it to be real. And so did the jury. The jury also thought it was credible. Yeah, I agree. And even if Michael Carson ever recants his confession, I think that those kind of recantations should be looked at with suspicion. I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure. It seems like a lot of benefits come from supporting the West Memphis Three. They seem to have an endless amount of money, endless amount of media attention and connections. I do believe out of the three, I understand how Jason is a harder sell. I'll have people that will tell me like, I think Damien probably did it, but I don't think Jason had anything to do with it. But here's the problem. Damien places Jason with him. Right. People always talk about the four girls, which is supposed to be Damien's alibi. From the time, the murder, you know, like within that time frame, we have, they're not accounted for. Jason's not accounted for. The Hollingsworth family sighting, we have... Uh, but that was Domini and Eccles, not Jason, correct? Right. Well, it's interpretive. I know that Narlene is very convinced that it was Domini. And again, I wasn't there. I can't say. What is weird is why were they walking in the direction to Jason's house? So with, down the service road. So that's kind of interesting to me. I think it was him, but I understand like that's a little bit harder. But Damien was clearly uh, identified. That was pretty clear. And then there's also that moment where Baldwin... And this is after he got released. He's talking about the death penalty and he's talking, we've gotten rid of obviously the juvenile death penalty, but he's talking about people who face the death penalty because of the mistake that they've made. We don't just throw away their life because they made a mistake. And I thought that was very telling. And so did William Ramsey, because clearly no one in their right mind would call killing three eight-year-old boys a mistake unless you did it, (laughs) right? Wow, that seems like a slip. It's like the question that cops ask. What should be done to the person who commits this crime? They actually asked Eccles and Baldwin that, and they both said they both should get the death penalty. Well, Eccles got the death penalty. Baldwin got life in prison. 
they both got out mm-hmm. and Baldwin got his big party, but it wasn't thrown for by his parents. It was thrown for by Eddie Vedder and a bunch of other big time West Memphis three supporters. So it's kind of interesting the way everything works out. It is. It's tragic, too, because they should still be in prison as far as I'm concerned. Damien should have been executed. And that's my personal opinion. I don't care the fact that they haven't committed a crime since. And it's Echo's opinion, too, to the person who did this. He's been convicted twice. He pleaded guilty being an Alford, and he got convicted by a jury trial. And they make excuses, yeah, as far as the the guilty thing. We had to. We had to. The state was never going to let us go. This was the only way. Again, playing onto the conspiracy that, unfortunately, they had to take the lesser of two evils. And I would encourage anybody who thinks that Baldwin wasn't involved is to listen or read all of Jesse Miss Kelly's confessions that we have available. And if you believe those confessions, Baldwin was the most violent and heartless of the three. And he was. Now, it would be different, let's say, if Jason never played with knives, if he never was violent towards other people. Again, he clearly was not afraid of a full-grown man. He wasn't afraid. And a man who was violent, who would slap around his mother, would slap around him, would slap around his younger brother. He clearly demonstrated that he could do that. He clearly demonstrated that he would be willing to choke his brother until he was beat red, which I don't know what the time frame of that would be, but still it's pretty messed up. And look, siblings do do crazy stuff like that. So I'm not saying that because he did that, well, that proves that he's a murderer. What it proves is the fact that he is capable of controlling, he is capable of fighting, and that's all that is. And the fact that he is pretty skillful with a weapon, I mean, skinning a snake, not everyone can just do that. It does take a level of skill, just like if you're going to skin a deer, a buck, whatever. Agreed. And bringing back to your theme of perception isn't always reality, you created a meme talking about how people look. And I think the West Memphis Three were acutely aware of how they looked because Damien Eccles was kept clean-shaven, short hair, all through when he was in prison and trying to get out. Mm -hmm. And at the end there, it seemed like he was given some kind of media training because he's saying the same kind of sentences over and over again. Oh, tattoos weren't as common back then in 1993. Now we have housewives, you know, saying the same lines again and again and again in different interviews. So can you talk a little bit about the meme you created and um, how looks and what we think people are capable of are intimately connected? It's like to the two girls, they don't look like they could have committed this murder. I did post a a photo on uh, one of my episodes regarding Jason. And that was like talking about just because someone doesn't look like they can commit a crime doesn't mean that they don't. And I used examples like Ted Bundy was always considered very respectful and and caring. As a matter of fact, he worked for a suicide hotline. And one of the ladies that worked there, he would always make sure she got to her car safe because he didn't want anything bad to happen to her, (laughs) right? Then it turned out he was doing some really bad things. And then those two girls, it was Sheila Eddy and Rachel Bow. they murdered their friend Skylar Niece. And they stabbed her to death and they did it in this desolate woods. I think Sheila's family owned property there. And I mean, just aggressively stabbing. And according to Rachel, who confessed later down the line to the crime, she said that Sheila would just last dying breath would say, why? And so if you were to see these two girls, they're beautiful. They're popular. Like these weren't like these crazy outcasts, like what you could say what Damien and uh, Jason and Jesse were, just trailer park slum. These were popular girls in West Virginia and had popular friends and something flipped in their mind. And the excuse they gave was that we just didn't like her anymore. Wow. You know, some reasons defy logic. 
Rick Mullinex, where can people find your work? They can go to YouTube. Now, sometimes it can be hard to find it if you just type in Burn After Reading because the title is based off a movie which deals with a bunch of morons going down these rabbit holes. But I'm sure if you type in Burn After Reading, West Memphis 3, Burn After Reading, Maura Murray, or Burn After Reading, Kylie Rodney, they can find me there. You know, my thing is not just covering true crime, like just the cases. What I like to do is call out the bad actors in true crime, whether it's a author, whether it's a filmmaker, or celebrities who are perpetuating something that's not true and is hurting and is revictimizing. That's the kind of thing that I like to do in true crime. At least that's where my passion is. It's just not covering any case that comes down the pike because we got to fight these things because it does hurt families. And when you have a popular misconception, these people come in droves. And I hate to say it, there's almost like a cult-like personality or a mentality. So check it out, please. I agree. You won't be out of material, sadly, anytime soon. Unfortunately, and I wish I could cover it all. It's just hard. I just try to cover what I can. What I know, I always say cover what you know um, and make sure you have the facts. And if you get something wrong, that's okay. Admit you're wrong. Don't double down on it. Agreed. Rick Mullinax from Burn After Reading YouTube channel. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roberta. It was a pleasure.